Last week, we heard a message from the book of Obadiah. Obadiah spoke a message of judgment against God's enemies, enemies who had taken advantage of God's people when they were being conquered by the Babylonians and taken away into exile. But God also promised a message for His people of restoration. He promised to restore them and bring them back to the promised land. Within 70 years, God had begun to fulfill that promise in um, an amazing way. The Persian king Cyrus conquered the Babylonian empire, where God's people were in exile, and he issued a decree freeing them to return to their ancestral home and to rebuild the temple of God. Ezra records this astonishing decree at the beginning of his book. It says this, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people... May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, beside freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." What an amazing answer God gave to His promises, and so quickly for His people. God's people returned to the land with excitement, but were quickly opposed by those around them, and eventually their excitement gave way to apathy towards God. They began to focus on their own concerns, like rebuilding their homes and rebuilding their lives. Sixteen years passed, and the people continued to neglect the work that God had given them of building His house. So the Lord raised up Haggai to speak to His people. God had four messages for His people given over a few short months. Before we look at each of these, let's ask God for His help to understand His Word and to apply it to our lives. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today? By your Spirit, would you stir up our hearts to fear and to worship and obey you? Would you convict us of our sin and lead us to repentance? In the name of Jesus, we ask you, and for his glory alone. Amen. If you would turn to the book of Haggai, if you're not that familiar with the Bible, it's uh, just before we get to the New Testament, a couple books back, you'll find Haggai. So, uh, you might be helped by using the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible or asking someone near you who is more familiar with the Bible. But we'll be looking at Haggai today. Each of these four messages for his people is introduced with the same phrase, the word of the Lord came. 
together these four messages, these four words from God, call for the hearer to consider your ways and to consider God's glorious promises. That's what the book of Haggai is about. Consider your ways and consider God's glorious promises. We're going to unpack each of these by reading one word at a time, and I'll help us to think about them and how we can apply them to our lives. The first word is the first chapter, so read along with me as I read it out loud. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors." Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the, peop- and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. The first call that we see here, this first word, is a call to consider your priorities. It was a call for the people in Haggai's day to consider their priorities, and it's a call for us to consider our priorities. Haggai gives us very specific dates and times about when each of his messages came from the Lord. We're told this first one came in the second year of Darius the king, the king of Persia, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Which means that God spoke to Haggai on August 29th, 520 BC. 
We literally know what date it was. Isn't that quite incredible? The specificity of God's word here. Haggai makes it clear that this message is not his own. This is a message from God. Over 25 times in just two chapters, he mentions that it was the Lord's word. It was the Lord's message. It was God speaking. Haggai was bringing this message, but he wanted everyone to know that he was just the messenger boy. This wasn't his word, it was God's. That's also important for us to pay close attention to, brothers and sisters, to remember that this is God's word. Maybe over the last few weeks, as we've spent time in Joel, a few weeks in Joel, and a week in Obadiah, and now here we are in another short, fairly unfamiliar part of the Bible, maybe some of you have been wondering when we'll get back to the good stuff. When will we get back to Mark's gospel? Or maybe when will we be in in an epistle? Well, these are God's word to us. Haggai wants us to know, and I want you all to know, that these are God's words here contained in the Old Testament. And these are profitable for us to spend time looking at and considering and seeking to apply to our lives. These scriptures are inspired by God, and we're told that they're important for us. That's what Haggai wants them to know. These are important. Let us consider them carefully and thoughtfully. God's message was delivered by Haggai to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the acting leader under the Persian king, Darius, that we heard about. And he writes to Joshua, the high priest, the one who would have led the worship in the temple if the temple existed. These are the leaders of the people, and they're mentioned here in particular. So let me take a moment to just quickly say, those of us that have been entrusted with the role of leading this church, the elders of this church, we're responsible for helping our people hear God's Word and apply it to their lives. We need to be devoted to that and to take great care in that. God says to them, these people say it's not time to rebuild my house. God had brought them out of exile, He had delivered them back into the land that He had promised them, and He had given them the task of rebuilding His temple, the dwelling place where He dwelt among His people. But when they began to do the work that God had asked them, they faced opposition and distraction. Isn't that so like this world to oppose those that are doing God's will and His work? God speaks again because they got distracted and they gave up. God speaks again and He's got a question for the people. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house, this house, lies in ruins? God sarcastically asks them, what are you doing? The people have found time to spend on improving their own homes with wooden paneling. They've worked hard on their home improvements, but they've neglected the work that God had given them of rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. In verses 6 and 9 through 11, 
we see that despite their strivings for their own comforts, God had opposed them. They've sown much, harvested little. They're never satisfied. They don't have enough to eat, to drink. They're never warm. And it's like they put their wages into a bag with holes in it, and it all falls out. This probably was a result of poor supplies in their harvest and the resources that they had, so that prices would go up. So it was literally that their wages were becoming less and less worth anything. God says, therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called a drought on everything. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to them? Why has God blown away all of their productivity? He tells us in verse 9, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. The people have been brought back from exile in Babylon, but they are still suffering the curses for their disobedience that were laid out in God's covenant with them that He made through Moses. The fact that they are busy with seeking to build their own homes while neglecting to build the Lord's house demonstrates that they may have returned to the land but they haven't returned to the Lord. They haven't returned to the Lord to love and obey Him with all of their heart and mind and soul and strength. What does God tell them to do? Look in verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And again in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. The people had a problem with their priorities. God tells them they need to consider their ways because He's graciously brought them home and He's provided what they need to complete the work. And they have time and they have energy and strength and skills. But God's house lies in ruins and their homes become more and more glamorous. God's people are to put Him first in their lives. But here we see they have a problem with misplaced priorities. God is not at the center of their lives anymore. They are. God's people had prioritized their physical well-being over their spiritual well-being. Without the temple, God's presence wasn't in their midst. They couldn't offer sacrifices for their sins. They couldn't worship God in the way that He had called them to do. And remember, this wasn't just a temporary pause on the work. They had been back in the land for 16 years without building God's house. It's easy for us to look at them with indignation and think, oh my goodness, how could these people do this? I would never act that way. It's easy to imagine ourselves heroically going to the building site and laying up bricks, even in the face of opposition. But the reality is that we often can become just like them. We might not have been tasked by God to build a building, a physical dwelling place for Him, but the Lord has given us many commands and much work to do. How are we doing in our priorities? That's what's at the heart of what God is calling His people to here. So let's take a moment to consider 
our priorities, individually and as a church. These people had said that the time wasn't yet there for them to rebuild the house. Notice how God distanced himself from them. He says, these people, rather than my people. That's because they're not acting like God's people. So let's consider, how do we use our time? One way our priorities are seen and shown is in how we think about and use our time. We find and we make time for everything that we hold most valuable, most important in our lives. Whether that be binge-watching Netflix TV shows, playing sports, going to the gym, or rest and recreation. Pastor John Piper said, One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove on the last day that prayerlessness was not out of a lack of time. I don't know about you, but that's very convicting to me. How do we use our time? Do we give our best time to our own comforts and purposes or to God's purposes? I admit there are days that go by when I'm not diligent to spend time in the Word that I should, to spend time with the Lord in prayer like I should, but I almost never miss dinner. There's nothing wrong with eating dinner, of course. There's nothing necessarily unspiritual about doing that, but it goes to show that I'm guilty at times of thinking that my physical well-being is more important than my spiritual well-being. But Jesus told us, and the Old Testament says, that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you take as much time and care in planning how you will be spiritually fed throughout the week as you do about your meal planning for the week? Are you content with having spiritual leftovers in the back of the fridge or spiritual ramen noodles rather than preparing delicious spiritual meals with God's people by spending time in His Word and in prayer? What about as a family? It's easy for us to prioritize family time, but is our first thought about how we can have the most fun together and enjoyment? Again, fun and enjoyment is not wrong, brothers and sisters, but we should have our hearts and minds inclined towards God's purposes for our family. Are we thinking about the ways that we can encourage our spouse or our brother or sister or children or other family members in how to love Jesus more, how to grow in obeying Him more and fulfilling His purposes in their life? What about in the household of God, in the church? Do we give minimum time to doing one another good? Just showing up on a Friday for a few hours, and then throughout the week, if we have any spare time, it goes towards serving ourselves rather than those we've committed to here at Covenant Hope. Perhaps we spend more time traveling or on the golf course or at the beach than we do with fellow members of the body of Christ. When we do spend time together, are we seeking and thinking about, are we considering how we can use this to do spiritual good to those that we're spending time with? asking good questions, praying for one another, 
spurring one another on, even in the midst of fun and recreational activity and going to the beach. When we do spend time together, we should be seeking God's purposes. We should be seeking to use our time to accomplish the work that He's given us of building one another up. A lot of us, including myself, often feel like we're so busy. We've got too much on our plate and we don't have a lot of time to give to other things, which is why we need to be careful in considering how we steward the time that God has given us. How are we redeeming the time? But I've been challenged recently because my iPhone, without any uh, desire for me, has started to report to me about my screen time. I didn't ask it to, it just started doing that. It even breaks down the minutes that I spend on my phone, looking at my phone, to tell me how I've been using that time. Different categories pop up. Social networking, reading and reference, entertainment. The point is that I think that the reality is that we have more time than we think. And we need to take time to consider how we're using our time. What does our time show about our priorities? God's people's wrong priorities didn't only show up in how they thought about time, it also showed up in how they used their talents, the talents that God had given them. So let's consider, how do we use our talents? We see that they weren't idle, God's people here. They were busy. It wasn't that they were doing nothing. Their problem wasn't laziness. But they were busying themselves to serve themselves, rather than prioritizing obeying God. How are you using the skills that God has given to you? Each and every one of us has been given gifts and skills from God. Are you seeking to use them to serve the Lord and to serve His church? Do you think of ways that you might use the gifts that God's given you to bless brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe you think, I, I don't really have a lot of particularly spiritual skills. I'm I'm not really great at discipling other people. I'm not confident at praying with others, and, and it's really hard for me to interact with kids. Brothers and sisters, not many of us were born with natural gifts in those in those places, natural skills from birth. That's not often the case. They develop over time with patience and practice and determination. Do you think that God's remnant here, God's people who returned to the land, felt called to construction work? The truth is that the things that we think are most important are the things that will work hard at developing skills and talents to serve what we most value. Is that God in your life? Another way that we can test to see what our priorities are is by considering how we steward the treasures that God has given us. How do we use God's given treasures to us? How do we steward the finances and the resources that we have? This is one of the easiest ways to evaluate what we hold most important in our lives, to consider how, how our, we spend our money. 
Taking one look at your bank account will quickly reveal what are the most important things in your life. What do you spend money on every week, every month, every year? So let me ask you, are you regularly considering how you can be a better steward of the finances that God has given you to serve God's kingdom first? Are you giving to the ministry of this church? Is it from the first fruits, so to speak, when your paycheck comes in? Or is it whatever's remaining at the end of the month, whatever's left over? Do you prioritize your next travel plans or recreational activities? Or how you can use your money to generously serve God's kingdom purposes for His glory? Do you plan how you're going to spend your money? Do you have a budget? Are you giving to other gospel ministries? At this church at Covenant Hope, our members, we've covenanted to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. How are we doing, Covenant Hope, in fulfilling that commitment? You know, we, we as a church didn't make that up. Those commitments come from the Bible. Jesus said, a worker is worth his wages. And Paul said, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God loves a cheerful giver. Let me encourage you to include these kinds of questions and the topic of financial stewardship in your discipling relationships. Be asking these kinds of questions that I've asked you. Ask one another, how are you using the resources that God has trusted you with? And how does that reveal what are the priorities of your heart? I don't ask you these questions to guilt you into giving more money to this church or to serving in the kids' ministry either, but to help us all to see that there are areas of our lives where we all need to reorient our hearts to put God and His purposes first. And I hope that this illustrates that considering your ways, considering your priorities, can't happen in a 50 minutes on a Friday afternoon. It will take a lot more than that. It takes time to consider how we're stewarding these things and where our priorities lie. Remember, God here is calling them to consider this, consider their ways, to lead them to repentance. So if you're like me and here thinking a little bit about what Haggai is saying to us, if you're convicted by these words, the answer is repentance. The answer is repentance. Ask God to forgive you for putting things before Him in your life, whatever they may be and receive forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, and then seek to put Him first. Verses 12 through 15 show how the people responded to God's Word. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the people feared God, the Lord, and they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. They started acting like God's people again. They repented and they got to work. I'm so encouraged how I see 
many of you responding in this way to God's word, turning from sin and seeking to obey God when you are confronted and convicted by God's word. That's the normal pattern of the Christian life. We don't see perfection, but conviction from God's word followed by repentance. Perfection comes later when Christ returns. We're told that this happened because the Lord stirred up the spirits, both of the leaders and of the people. Praise God for His sanctifying work through His Spirit, stirring up repentance in people's heart. I pray that that will be our response too. Obedience flows out of hearts that fear God, it says. What was the means by which their hearts began to fear God more? Through God's Word coming to them by the hand of Haggai. God, by His Spirit, through His Word, changed their priorities. He changed what they valued most. He changed their affections. And that's how real, lasting change takes place in our lives. God's Spirit applying His Word to our hearts to fear Him and to love Him more. But notice that it didn't happen overnight. Look at verse 1. The Word of the Lord came to Haggai on the first day of the month. And in verse 15, at the end of this section, it tells us that they got to work on the temple on the 24th day of the month. They took time. They listened to God's Word. They considered their ways. They repented, and they prepared, and then turned in obedience to God. Let's be a church that does this in response to God's Word as well. What does God promise them in the midst of all of this? Verse 13, I am with you. God promises to be with His people as they devote themselves to the work that He's called them to. You know, the Lord Jesus makes the exact same promise to us, His church, in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, as we set ourselves to God's work, He hasn't left us alone to do it. He promises His presence with us wherever we go as we're participating in the work that He's called us to. And we're told the result of faithfully serving Him in verse 7, so that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Our work is pleasing to God. It brings glory to His name. Isn't that what, God, as God's redeemed people, we should put above every other priority in our lives? God's pleasure and God's glory? Let's consider our ways that we might please God and glorify His name. Let's consider the second word that God gave to Haggai. You'll find that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, 
declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I'll shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Here, God is calling them to consider God's temple. That's our second point. Consider God's temple. This message from the Lord that came through Haggai came about three weeks later, October 17th, 520 BC. God gives the leaders of the people and the people another question to consider. Who remembers the temple in its former glory? Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed 66 years earlier, so only the oldest members of the remnant would have seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory before it was destroyed by the Babylonian invasion. The original temple was much larger than this second temple. Kings and queens traveled from afar to come and see it, we're told about one, Queen Sheba, Queen of Sheba, the Queen of Sheba. Um, she's described as being totally breathless when she came to see Solomon and his glorious temple. More than all the gold and silver that had filled the temple, the glory that people saw was when it was dedicated, because God manifested His glory and His presence in a great cloud. First Kings eight describes it. It says, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests couldn't stand to minister. They were blown away because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. God asks the people on Haggai's day, how does this temple that you've been building, how does that compare with the last one? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Ezra records that when the foundation had first been laid, the younger people celebrated, but the older people wept aloud as loudly as the young people celebrated because it was nothing compared to what the Lord's house had been before. God's people were reminded of the former days, glory days. The reality is that this temple is nothing compared to what it was before. It seems like God's people have gone backwards. And we too can be tempted to look back on days that have gone by, remembering a different season of our Christian lives, when we experienced a lot of spiritual growth, or when our Christian community seemed more sweet and encouraging, or when we saw more fruit in our lives or in our ministries. Perhaps for Covenant Hope, we can think back to the earliest days of this church, 
We think about how sweet it was that the Lord brought us together. But now we see some shortcomings. We wish things were a little different. We wish they were more like another time or another place that we've been. It's tempting to lose joy and to lose sight of what God is doing right now when we're looking back on the days that have gone by. But God wouldn't have us do that, brothers and sisters. Listen to what he says next. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people. Work, for I am with you, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. I'm still with you. In these nine verses, especially, and in the book as a whole, the title, The Lord of Hosts, is used over and over again. In other English translations, it might say, The Lord Almighty, or The Lord of Armies, that is, of angelic hosts, of angelic armies. This title is used 14 times in Haggai, and Haggai is emphasizing God's might and God's universal rule. The Lord is with them. This Lord of hosts is with them. They can take courage because He reigns over all, and He's committed to His promises of blessing them and being with them and being their God. Even though they continue to disobey and dishonor Him, He's promised to keep His covenant. He's promised that He's with them. And it might not seem as impressive as when He was in a cloud of smoke or on Mount Sinai in flame. It might not be as impressive as it was in the past. The temple that they're building is nothing compared to what it was before. But in the Lord's sight, it's pleasing. And it brings Him glory. And He will use it. Ministry can often feel unimpressive. Seeking to be faithful in sharing our faith or discipling others can often be discouraging at times. Fruit is hard to see, or maybe it won't be seen for a long time. Maybe we'll never see the fruit. But brothers and sisters, be strong. Be strong. And don't grow tired of doing others spiritual good. The Lord sees it, and it pleases Him and it brings glory to His name. God will use it. He is using it. When we're doing the work that He's given us to do, we're participating in something that will last into eternity. It won't be shaken. It won't disappear. The Lord tells them not to fear. Maybe they'll face opposition again, but He says, don't fear. He promises His presence, and He, he promises to empower them and he says that he'll shake the whole cosmos, the heavens and the earth and the seas and the dry land. He's going to shake the nations, bringing in all their treasures. The latter glory of this house will be greater even than it was before. And in this place, God is going to give them peace. Though the work they had done might not look like much, God will soon bless it in accomplishing his purposes of glorifying His name among all the nations. We see this plan of God's unfold throughout history. 
First, after this, it, he turns the hearts of Persian kings, like Artaxerxes, who made a decree to all the treasurers of the province to give Ezra whatever he required to finish the work on building the temple, gold and silver and treasures. Ultimately, though, we see God's plan to dwell among his people, building and building and building up to the sending of his son. His son, the word, the word of God, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God's glory didn't return to this temple like it had before, but it came in a far greater way that exceeded all their expectations. God's glory dwelt in the likeness of sinful flesh. God became a man, and He dwelt among His people. Where does God's glory dwell now? Where do we experience His presence today? The amazing truth, brothers and sisters, is that it's right here, in us, in the church. Peter says, you yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Jesus promises His disciples that when we gather in His name, He's in our midst. Like this temple, churches might not seem impressive, but that's where God's glory is on display. Paul tells us that the church is like a billboard that displays God's manifold wisdom to the world. And this house has far more glory than either of the temples had, because it's where Christ's glory dwells and where His grace is put on display. That's the work that God calls us to, brothers and sisters, to make disciples, to baptize people into the household of God, to build up the saints into the image of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the temple that God promises here in Haggai, brothers and sisters. It's being fulfilled in our midst. So let's be strong. Let's be bold. Our work and be, and be hard at work knowing that God by His Spirit is building Christ's church. One day our work will come to an end as we read in Revelation chapter 21. We look forward to a day when we'll dwell with God in a city without a temple because God will be the temple and there will be no need for sun or moon to shine because the glory of God will give it its light. Let's consider God's temple and how we can serve God's purposes of building His people into a dwelling place for God until Christ comes back. Let's look at the third word that God gave to Haggai. You'll find that in verses 10 to 19 of chapter 2. 
On the 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive, oil, the, the olive tree with, has yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. In this third message, God calls his people to consider their sins. Consider your sins. That's the third message. The word of the Lord comes about two months later. We're up to December 18th, 520 BC now. And God involves the priests in teaching his people by asking them a series of questions. These questions seem strange to us. They appear a little odd because we don't follow the Old Testament Levitical law. God asks about carrying holy meat in your clothes. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about carrying holy meat in your clothes before. God asks, if you carry holy meat in your clothes, if you touch something with the garment that you're wearing, does it become holy? And the priests answer correctly, no. Then God asks, what about if someone who is unclean touches something clean? Does it become unclean? And again, the priests answer correctly, Yes, it becomes unclean. And then we get to the point of the message that God is trying to communicate. In verse 14, look at it. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer here, there, is unclean. God's people have considered their ways, They've repented of their apathy. They've committed themselves to obeying God's word. They've begun building the temple. And yet, God says, it's not enough. You are defiled. You are unclean. And because you're unclean, everything else that you touch, all of your works are defiled as well. Consider, the Lord says. Remember, when you were disobedient and hadn't given yourself to building the temple, what happened? The curses of the covenant came upon you. I blew away what you had. But what about now? 
How about until today, since you built the foundation of the Lord's temple? Nothing changed. They yielded nothing. Why? Because they were unclean. Even their best works of obedience were tainted by sin. The prophet Isaiah says the same thing. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The Lord is saying your works of obedience are insufficient. Works are important. We've seen that from the first two sections, the first two words. But here we see that we can't rest on our good works alone. On their own, every single one is an unclean offering to God. The fact that the people are part of a holy task of building God's temple doesn't make them a holy people. The Lord is calling for them to consider their sin, and we must do that too. Consider our sin and how devastating it really is that no amount of repentance and good works of obedience can remove the stain of sin. They can't undo sin for us. We need something more. Sin pollutes everything. Even our best efforts to please God are tainted by sin. Sin brings the curse of death and God's righteous judgment against us, just as it brought the curses of the law on those in Haggai's day. Sin goes deeper than we can possibly even imagine. It's like a cancer or a disease. It spreads and it affects and it touches and taints every area of our lives. This is our greatest problem, and no amount of good deeds can cleanse us from sin. And every one of our deeds is tainted with sin, because we see here that sin spreads much more easily than holiness. In fact, that's the very reason that they needed a temple. God had graciously provided a way for unclean, defiled, sinful people to be washed clean and forgiven of their sins. Covenant Hope, I'm so encouraged to see so many of you growing in faith and growing in obedience to God, seeking to disciple others and serve them and spur them on in the Christian life. As an elder, nothing brings me greater joy than to see that in your lives. But there's a warning here for us. We must not rest on our obedience or our good works. We must not forget that even our best efforts in sharing our faith, in discipling our kids, in leading Bible studies, in serving those around us. Even these need God's grace to be pleasing in His sight. Do you see the depth of our problem with sin? Sin is serious. Holiness before God matters more than anything else in our lives. Pursuing holiness is so important. It's more important than our life situation, more important than our physical comforts, more important than our careers. Jesus teaches us this when He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? 
What can a man give in return for his soul? The people had prioritized earthly well-being over their relationship with God because they'd forgotten this, how serious sin was. And even now, as they turn back to God in obedience, God reminds them, your sin needs to be dealt with. It's only when we consider the seriousness of sin and how powerless we are to stop it that we understand God's holiness and our brokenness and our desperate need for grace, God's unmerited favor. God must act to cleanse us. God must act to make us holy. We can do nothing apart from His grace and mercy. On our own, we'd be without hope and we'd be headed for hell. But God promises grace. Look with me at the last part of verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. God doesn't give an explanation. God simply promises to bless His unclean people in spite of their defilement, in spite of their sin. God promises them grace. Friend, if you are here today and you aren't a Christian, do you realize that this is what Christianity is all about? Do you realize that the Bible teaches over and over and over again that every single one of us is a sinner and that none of us, not one of us, can by our good works earn ourselves a place with God? Just like the people here, we all need God's grace to cleanse us of our defilement, of our sin. Every man and woman that ever lived other than Jesus was born defiled by the sin of our father, Adam, and our sinners ourselves were guilty. No amount of righteous deeds can undo that. No, we needed something much more than good deeds. We needed God to act out of His own love and grace to bless us to cleanse us from our sin, which runs so deep. And God promised to do that, and He kept His promise by sending His Son, Jesus. Jesus left the riches and the glory of heaven to come and live amongst His defiled, unclean people. He cleansed us from our sin by bearing our sin on Himself. He took on sin and He went to the cross, dying the death and the punishment and the wrath that we deserve for our sin. And He rose from the grave to show His victory over the grave and to show that sin had been dealt with. Our sin was great, but God's grace was greater still. Our problem ran deep, but God's love runs deeper. Friend, you can receive God's grace today. He offers it to all of those who see their need of it. All of those that see their need of saving through the work of Jesus Christ. Will you turn to Him today? Finally, let's look at the fourth word that God gave to the people. You'll find that in the last four verses, verses 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai, 
on the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In this fourth message from God, we hear a call to consider God's king. That's the fourth and final point. Consider God's king. The second word we saw that God promises to shake the heavens and the earth, bringing glory to his temple. Then we saw God promises grace for his and blessing for his defiled people. Then on the same day, God gives a fourth and final word for their leader, Zerubbabel, promising again to shake the heavens and the earth, but this time in order, in order to overthrow and destroy the kingdoms of the world and to establish his chosen servant, Zerubbabel, as a signet ring. Zerubbabel is acting as the governor of Judah under the Persian king Darius that we heard mentioned before, but here, unlike the first three messages, the reign of King Darius isn't mentioned. God speaks to Zerubbabel, the heir of David's throne, the rightful king of God's people, and he promises that to make he promises Zerubbabel to make him God's signet ring. A signet ring was used by kings to seal royal documents as a sign or a representation of his authority. It often had an engraving that reflected that king. And here God is promising Zerubbabel that he will establish him as his authoritative representative on earth. Zerubbabel will be God's representative. With the restoration of God's house underway, God is here reaffirming the promise that he made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would build David's house, his dynasty. God is committed to keeping his covenant both with Israel and with David himself, to bless them and to give them an unshakable and everlasting kingdom. God is reestablishing the throne of David and he's promising David's son, his heir, Zerubbabel, will be God's representative on earth. God's promise here restores this expectation of a Messiah, a Davidic son who will reign forever. Zerubbabel led God's people. He oversaw the rebuilding of the temple. But Zerubbabel died. And Matthew chapter 1, the very first chapter of the New Testament, tells us about the line of Zerubbabel. We see that this Davidic line continued from generation to generation to generation until the birth of Jesus, who is called Christ. Jesus is the perfect representative of God's authority because he is God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, not like a signet ring, much greater than that. God's promises unfold and are fully realized in Jesus. 
King Jesus brings about this hope for God's presence and blessing and grace for his people. Our reading earlier from Hebrews helps us see how we should respond to considering this king and to considering his coming kingdom. The reading from earlier says, Let us be grateful, brothers and sisters, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In Christ, our acts of worship, our good deeds of obedience, become acceptable worship to God. They're cleansed of their taint of sin. Let's continue to consider God's glorious King, Jesus, until He returns, when He'll shake the heavens and the earth, and only those who are part of His kingdom will remain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us your word, that you've spoken to us, even as you spoke to Haggai and to the people, Lord. We pray that you would help us to prioritize you above all things in our lives. We pray that we would put you first and that we would consider your kingdom and that we would seek your kingdom above all things. We pray that we would be people that respond in repentance when we're convicted by your word. We pray that we would be people that recognize the seriousness of sin. And we pray that we would be people that look forward to and long for the day when our glorious King Jesus will return. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.